You are listening to Oliver Dixon on the Station of the Year. 36 minutes after 10 o'clock, you're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for your time this evening. I really do appreciate it. In 2025, South Africa will host the G20 summit. And whoever is the president at the time of the country will be the president of the G20, will be leading uh, the G20 at the time. India had been the host and leader of the G20 in this calendar year. Many dubs it, dub it as a really successful G20 summit considering the circumstances. Kwezi Mglisa, who's a research associate at the Center for African Diplomacy and Leadership at the University of Johannesburg, joins us for this conversation. Kwezi, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. Perhaps we need to ask this question because this is a question that leaves me bewildered about the dynamics of geopolitics and international relations. And that is the question of the membership makeup of the G20. The group of 20 countries, what do they exist for especially given that China and Russia, on the one hand, are members of the G20, but so is the United Kingdom and the United States of America. Good evening, Oliver. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a very important question, but one which I think deserves a lot of uh, simplification. Um, you are a member of the Orlando Pirates football team, I assume. <laughs> I, I actually am. Me. I am. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you do watch Banyana Banyana. At the same time, you are... Um, uh, uh, supporting and shouting your lungs out for uh, the, the Springboks. Yeah. This is the, the reality of uh, nation states as well, is that they are continuously looking at types of relationships and interactions that would advance their strength uh, in terms of attaining national priorities. But at the same time, they wish to be a part of a community of nations that shape the world in whatever type of um, uh, uh, vision that they would like to see. So there's nothing sinister in seeing countries in the G20, which is made up of the top 20 economies in the world, be made up of others that are actually saying that because of the strength of our economy, we are members of the G20, but at the same time, we think we will find much value in other sorts of partnerships and arrangements and collaborations. Hence, within the G20 itself, you'll see a number of connotations of special relationships, special uh, proximity, alliances, special collaborations, and such like. Yeah. In history, I can only remember Morocco leaving the AU and um, England leaving, uh, you know, Brexit. Um, I can't think of any other significant case where a member of a preferential political uh, an economic collaboration and cooperation forum, such as a trade bloc, have left such a group uh, on on the premise that they do not get along with another member of the group uh, and that they have irreconcilable differences and that there's a complete breakdown in relations. Um, I would imagine at least that the United States and Russia would have reached that point. Could the rest of the forum really conducively have discussions and meet con- and make consensus, meet consensus on very divisive matters if there are two countries who are on irreconcilable sides of the divide. I say this because one of the issues that was discussed by the G20 was the issue of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Correct, correct, Oliver. The, the reality of the matter is that these platforms and alliances are also places whereby uh, countries would seek to acquire some understanding from uh, the other brother members of the team. Yeah. So Russia 
in the U.S. would actually be using this particular platform in order to communicate and try and sway the diplomatic lens of these member countries in, on their side or in their interpretations of what's happening or not happening yeah. in that part. The reality of the matter is that us who are normal people, so to speak, without nuclear weapons, uh, no armies to command, that are always on the extremist side of interpretation whereby just because there is a war going on, we assume that all relationships have been terminated. This is not the case. In order to see a, 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 a fruit of the global order that emerged after the Cold War, both the United States and Russia continue to pursue some sort of pretend or, for that matter, emphasis of how to relate with each other without going to the sore point, for example, of NATO expansion as we've seen with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So we, we must not at times just simply um, have the, the simplistic uh, zero to hundred in 10 seconds uh, conclusions that they cannot talk to each other. They are not collaborating with each other. There is a whole lot more that is going on. Um, if you look into the, 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 the arrangements on military security, not cooperation, but presence around the world, the U.S. is still dominant in the high seas. Uh, Russia is monitoring uh, those movements together with China and many other parts of the world. There is uh, nuclear cooperation, there is space exploration, there is trade facilitation, although yeah. uh, it will be negatively affected by the choices of Russia vis-a-vis the, the, the Green Deal and, and such like. But there is ongoing engagement. And these platforms are a very good place to come and show your peers, your side of the, of, of, of the, of the coin or your perspective. Yeah. Could they even meaningfully have discussions about economic cooperation and expansion, given that the United States has quite literally isolated Russia through sanctions from the Western world economic order and institutions? This is where the, the geopolitics become super hyper interesting, Oliver, because if you think about it, for a country like ours, such as South Africa, much of our choices are largely shaped by exogenous or external sectors. Yeah. Whereas when it comes to these uh, superpowers, some would even refer to the U.S. as a hyper-superpower, uh, whereby it can take unilateral decisions. Having, uh, attending the G20, going to the United Nations, going to these multiple platforms, is a place whereby you are making a case once more for those countries who, from a legal, international legal point of view, will be making the case of pushing back for, from U.S. unilateral action to actually say that these sanctions are unilateral. They are not United Nations sanctions. But these platforms are a place where the U.S. can then go to make the case to say that will you support our interpretation and our intervention in the United Nations. The same applies with Russia, where it would have to be in those platforms in order to make the case to say that this type of unilateral action could be needed or visited upon yourself if it is yeah. So we must continue, despite our differences, we must continue to maintain a global order and multilateral uh, system of government that does not yield to the unilateral uh, uh, preferences of one country over others. Yeah. Give me a call. I'm taking your reactions to this conversation on 086-000-2032. 086-000-2032. I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice note on 0614-104-107. Let's move to the actual substance around some of the outcomes of the G20. Um, and that was the statement on Russia 
Many argue that it's a miracle that Narendra Modi was able to pull off a statement on Ukraine, given the division therein. Many also they argue uh, that it was quite a soft statement in its language. What's your take on it? Well, the India and Prime Minister Modi specifically um, made it possible to have various divergent points of view reach a consensus statement, watered down or otherwise. Primarily because if we look into the geopolitics in that part of the world, many are of the view that the ongoing um, or rather residual um, animosity at times between China and India would almost automatically mean that India is easily America's ally or police guard, so to speak, or, or, or guardian of interest in that part of the world. But what Prime Minister Modi has, has done, even before he came to the BRICS summit in South Africa, before he, before he, of course, planning for this particular G20 summit, he has been taking strategic walkabouts right around the world, where he has been trying to communicate the fact that the independence that India foresees or envisions or is enjoined towards of a global order of independent sovereign states is not something that he or that his country, India, will easily forsake for the sake of uh, being liked by China or liked by Russia and opposed to the U.S. So it was possible because people trust that what this man says, what India represents, is actually the type of uh, a future that many of these countries would like to see, whereby their sovereignty, their independence, their choices are worth the salt, uh, uh, as it were. And, 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 and to that effect, has India positioned itself now as an interlocutor or as potential interlocutor between Ukraine and Russia? Interestingly, some would say that uh, they have got um, a strategic role to play, primarily because the U.S. is courting them, uh, Russia and China are courting them. But my sense is that India is not interested in being a party to global intrigue or to the geopolitics of intrigue. Uh, unlike some would suggest, for example, for a smaller country like, or economy like South Africa, that although it does not have the cohesive means to drive uh, a definitive diplomatic agenda, but they would want to go and mediate with other Africans uh, in the Ukraine-Russia uh, 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 conflict. I think India is paying the cost of that which is of national interest to it. And at this point in time, the strength that India has shown or the strength that has delivered the type of outcome that is still in the G20 will not, be, will not always be there. And India understands that rather stay the course of independence towards attaining your national uh, uh, priorities so that people can listen to you for the sake of being an independent actor rather than being a globalist and global player that wants to level, uh, so to speak, or for that matter, punch above your weight. Yeah, it kind of did feel like it was uh, punching above its weight. With what posture that the United States of America approached the G20 summit this year? <laughs> well, as you indicated, that uh, next year the G20 will be in Brazil. The year after that, it will be in South Africa. And of course, Oliver, in 2026, where will it be? In the United States of America. Yeah. It is definitely clear that there is an acknowledgement on the part of uh, policy uh, thinkers in Washington that there is a change that is taking place in geopolitics or the moment of, of definitive change has been long coming, but it is coming, it's tinkering in that direction. And the U.S. must find itself in all the right platforms and tables in order to influence the retention of some of its critical uh, national priorities. Uh, it's no longer 
the, 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 it's no longer an unquestioned hegemon. It's no longer an all-encompassing, omnipresent uh, geostrategic pivot, the U.S. that is. They are acknowledging this, and I think that's why they are continuously making trips to the continent, they're making trips to Asia. They are actually making overtures to China to correct uh, some of the statements that they might have made that could be misunderstood or misinterpreted by China. This is not a bad thing, but I mean, let us remember, uh, geopolitics is not necessarily what you and I are reading, but it is actually the expression of the policies of these major countries and how they impact on our lives. Geopolitical groupings have become a terrain of contestation in that it is now a competition of international relations. This is why some groups are more attractive than others. This is why, for instance, BRICS has garnered so much interest and so many member states or so many countries want to join BRICS and certain other groupings. Uh, And the expansion of geopolitics is part of that competition. Um, Given that it is now a competitive terrain, one can't help but wonder if G20 is the global premium platform through which global peace, prosperity, and cooperation will be fostered, or if BRICS offers uh, a, a better alternative for that, especially given that BRICS wants to de-dollarize, form a global alternative, um, you know, and, and, and all of these sorts of things. Given just how competitive uh, the, the geopolitical groupings have become, again, the question is, what does that make of the competition, if any, between G20 and BRICS? Uh, G20 versus BRICS, for example. Uh, Oliver, there's the, the motivation of many countries wanting to join these clubs, because that's all that, that they are, they're yeah. clubs. It is because they have got, um, they, 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 there's a calculus that they're engaged in to say that if we want to achieve these three national priorities, which clubs offer us an opportunity for access to markets, uh, access to investment opportunities, uh, and so on, and security, you name it. So this is just the reality of it. It's not as if there is a, every club will easily take on future members because they also need to make a calculation to say that, do we want to have these types of countries with an economy of this nature, with this kind of governance, with this kind of security or insecurity for that matter? So that is the starting point. So the, 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 the global order of the future will be shaped by an accommodation of these various clubs. Uh, You would have seen uh, or heard or read, Oliver, that there's an emphasis in the statement from the the India-hosted G20 summit that has just concluded of the global south. Yeah. That there is recognition by these top 20 economies of the world that whatever deliberations, plans, or even uh, partnerships of prosperity that they might put amongst themselves, being the top 20 economies, None of those will be sustainable if global hunger, global peace and security, uh, climate change as it affects the global south, countries that are much poorer are not factored into their deliberations. So this is a a, a clear indication to me that there won't be one club that that, that will prevail. There will be a number of accommodations of various clubs of super rich, various clubs of properly governed democracy or with countries with higher... uh, democracy credentials, some countries that will be poor but possess natural resources, some countries or clubs that will reflect geographic regions such as the African Union. I think that is where realistically the future is. We will not all be rich like Sweden or Norway, 
will not all be endowed with natural resources like the Central African Republic and the DRC. Will not all have uh, uh, lightning fast growing economies such as Indonesia and Singapore and so on and so forth. So these clubs are a reflection of an accommodation. Yeah. Do they level the playing field? Do they make it easier for smaller, more emerging markets nations to really access global markets in ways that they think they do? Effectively, what I'm asking, is there any sort of data that we may uh, deduce from whether or not there's benefits to certain nations, particularly emerging smaller nations, to being part of these stock fails? Well, uh, there, there definitely is a, a potential for for value to being a member of these things. Think of a country like our South Africa. For for years, and rightly so, we have been referred to as one of the few countries in the world that punches very much above its weight uh, on the diplomatic stage, on the global stage. Uh, now, we have had um, leadership positions. We have had impact on ideation of, around the future of the world on platforms such as the Commonwealth, yeah. the Non-Aligned Movement, the G20, BRICS now, the United Nations, you name it. But none of those things have translated into our economy almost getting uh, <clears throat> the type of benefit that will be easily associated with this type of ideation impact as well as as influence. Why? It's got nothing to do with the clubs that we are a member of. It's got everything to do with the domestic national priorities. Are we putting in the work in order to leverage these networks and access we have in these diplomatic uh, platforms we are playing in to, to channel towards our economy, towards our industrialization, creation of employment, uh, accessing markets? It's got nothing to do with the clubs that we are a member of. Yeah. So, it is, it is a fundamental responsibility of the country then to make a calculation and articulate very clearly what its national priorities are. And that will be easier for the populace and other investors and, and economic thinkers to actually see the direct uh, benefit of joining a particular club and not the other. Yeah. And just lastly, uh, Lula de Silva is up next. Um, he is seen as... A, a, a progressive socialist, that's the sort of policies and politics that he champions in, uh, in, 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 in Brazil. Would that have any influence in what becomes the agenda for the G20 in the following calendar year? It definitely will. Um, let's just take a quick look. Uh, prior to the BRICS summit, President Lula Silva was having a bit of a diplomatic nightmare with some suggesting that he possibly, or Brazil, was possibly more closer to the U.S. than any of the other countries in Latin America. And this bothered people or BRICS watchers because they were saying it would appear as if um, uh, Lulata Silva will be a slowing break uh, into the agenda of BRICS uh, in order to maintain its unique relationship with the U.S. But what we know is that BRICS next year, 2024, will be hosted in Russia. Yeah. And this notion, this thing called de-dollarization, which there isn't anything called that. It's just countries that want to actually have a, a, a unique arrangement. If yeah. it will lead to the dollar being less used, that's it. But there's no agenda or policy position to de-dollarize anything. They're just going to use their own currency. So w when Russia will be busy with the so-called de-dollarization, uh, 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 what is it called? G20 on this other side, hosted by a BRICS member, country founding member in the form of Brazil will also be pursuing what is very important and very practical, which is resetting the global value chains on food security and transportation so that we don't see a repeat of what we've seen with Russia and Ukraine, with grain and everything else. I mean, these are all global 
issues of importance. And I think South Africa has found itself in the type of clubs that are important in tables that take meaningful decisions. And yeah. I think we will continue to see this. And I don't think anytime soon we're going to see de-dollarization or in, uh, immediately, or we're going to see an emergence of uh, the, the worldview of China or for that matter of BRICS uh, being dominant on Western domination and all of those things. This is work in progress that countries such as South Africa should take full advantage in pursuit of their national priorities. You are listening to Oliver Dixon on the Station of the Year.